0: Luke chapter 7 is the text for today. We're in this series called At His Feet, and we're working on a hypothesis. The theory that we're exploring in the Gospels is that that Mary and Martha, remember them from Easter Sunday? Mary and Martha fall at the feet of Jesus. They're outside the tomb where Jesus is raised from the dead. They fall down at Jesus' feet precisely Because they know from watching that if they come to the feet of Jesus, they can find what they really need. That's the thesis. That's the summary. That's the point of this entire series. That at the feet of Jesus, we find what we really need. Last week we were in Luke chapter 5. And I don't really intend this series to go in any sort of order through one gospel Or another, that's not the point here. It just so happens that this sermon follows on the one before. It just happens that way this time around. This story in Luke chapter 7 is the next time after Luke chapter 5 we find somebody falling at Jesus' feet. To begin with, I want to set the stage for the story. We've talked from time to time about how the Gospel writers don't necessarily tell the story of Jesus in chronological order. In fact, we would not expect them to do so. That's not the kind of writing that they were engaged in. Instead, the kind of writers, the Gospel writers, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, would be expected to take all the different stories of Jesus and organize them, not in terms of time, but in terms of topic. And to put stories together that make connections become apparent. And so when we say we want to set the stage for the story, we need to understand that these events did not necessarily happen in order. However, the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is guiding Luke, and as Luke is writing this Gospel, the Holy Spirit is bringing these stories together to begin developing a pattern and set the stage for the story, not chronologically, but topically here. In Luke chapter 7, we see a new section begin in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 6 contains the Sermon on the Plain, a section where Luke records some of Jesus' teachings. In Matthew, we just studied it, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. The setting is slightly different for Luke, but it serves a similar purpose in Luke's Gospel. A collection of Jesus' teachings gathered together in one place. And Luke chapter 7, verse 1, begins with the words, after Jesus had said these things, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening. So Luke clues us in. Chapter 7 is the beginning of something new. We're moving on to what's next in the Gospel. And this theme opens up with a story. And I don't really have time to go into detail on this story today, but I want you to notice the story It begins with the story of a centurion, a Roman military official, a a general in charge of a group of roughly a hundred soldiers. A centurion has a servant who works in his house and his servant has fallen ill. And somehow this centurion knows, he's heard the stories apparently, the centurion knows that if you come to the feet of Jesus, you can find what you really need. And so the centurion sends some messengers. Assuming that Jesus would be more likely to listen to the request if it came from some Jewish elders rather than a Gentile general, the centurion sends some Jewish elders to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. Long story short, Jesus agrees, and while they're on the way, the centurion sends another group of messengers. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my... Roof, just say the word and my servant will be healed. What I want you to notice, though, is what comes next. Focus in on chapter 7, verse 9 for just a moment. This is where Luke is setting the stage for us. Luke chapter 7, verse 9 says, When Jesus heard this, He was amazed. And turning to the crowd, following Him, He said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. I want you to notice a couple things about that one verse. Notice how Luke signals that Jesus is about to make an important point. How does Luke signal when Jesus is going to say something important? Uh, Again and again in the Gospel, we'll see Jesus turn and say... That's kind of a reader's clue. The author is giving the readers a clue that when Jesus turns and says, that's a little bit more dramatic than Jesus just saying. It's Luke saying, pay attention here. Jesus is going to say something important. This is, this is major. Jesus turned and said. Notice what he says. He says, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. If you remember back to last week, we said that faith is an important word in the Gospels. Faith is absolutely essential to the good news of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is here bringing grace, but in order to experience that grace, we have to receive it and we have to respond to it. And our response is faith. So the last time, Luke chapter 5, when the friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus and lowered him down through the roof, when Jesus looked up and saw their faith, that was the first time in Luke's Gospel that word faith is used. Faith seen in the faces of these friends gives us a definition of what faith means for Luke's Gospel. Chapter 7, verse 9, is the second place in all of Luke's Gospel that word faith is used. And again, faith is being found in surprising places before it wasn't the Pharisees sitting at jesus feet in the posture of of discipleship who had faith it was It was the vandals digging their way through the roof that had faith faith in surprising places here it's not the Jewish elders, the important Jews coming and going from Jesus who have the faith it's it's the Roman centurion, the general that has such Great faith. Luke wants us to get this. Jesus is finding faith in surprising places. Next story in Luke chapter 7 is a story about Jesus going to a village called Nain and and raising the only son of a widow back to life after he has died. And then after that, there's a section on, on John the Baptist. If you're a part of our Sunday nights, you know we just talked about this story not too long ago on Sunday night. John the Baptist is in prison where he's been since chapter 3 of Luke, and he sends messengers to and from Jesus to ask a pretty important question. Are you the one that we're expecting? Are you the coming one, or should we be looking for somebody else? Down in verse 22 now, notice Jesus' response to them. He tells them, tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is everyone, or anyone, who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus talks about this good news that he is bringing, and and not everyone is happy about it. Not everyone is happy about this sight-giving, lame-healing, leper-cleansing, dead-raising, good-news-preaching mission that Jesus is on. Some people are stumbling on account of Jesus. We've seen it in the Pharisees in Luke 5. Now we're going to see it again before too long. So Jesus speaks a word about those who would be scandalized by His ministry. Now we're down to verse 31. He says, to what can I compare to this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard t- And a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Jesus says, you want me to play by your rules. You want me to fit into your expectation. You want to play the tune and have me dance along to your rhythm. But as soon as I do something different, you pout and you whine like a bunch of spoiled kids. You call me a Friend of tax collectors and sinners as if that's a bad thing but don't be surprised to find out that wisdom has children in surprising places you begin to see the theme developing in this new section of Luke first it's the Roman centurion such great faith not even in Israel Now it's Jesus' friend of tax collectors and sinners. How dare He? Jesus is in the business of expanding the circle of grace. He's encountering people and He's bringing them into the community of faith and He's also encountering opposition because of it. That's the background for this story. Jesus is invited to the home of one of the Pharisees for dinner. Now, as soon as Luke tells us that Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee, we have a bad taste in our mouths about Pharisees. From last week's story, we already, we already look at Pharisees askance. We, we, we are doubtful when we hear that Pharisees want anything to do with Jesus. But notice, Jesus hasn't given up on the Pharisees any more than He's given up on the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is expanding the circle of grace. He's redeeming people. He's bringing them in. and, And if He can, He'll bring this Pharisee in too. So He accepts the invitation. Goes for dinner at the Pharisee's house. Now to understand what comes next, we probably need to understand the context in which Jesus lived the culture of that day. If we received an invitation, if someone said to us, would you come over and have dinner at my house, you'd probably know what to expect. Most likely you'd arrive at their house sometime about the time you were invited and told dinner would begin. You'd get out of your car, you'd go up, you'd ring the doorbell, and eventually someone would come to the door and open the door. Once the door is open, they'd greet you. They'd welcome you. So glad you're, you're here. Come on in. And they'd invite you into their house. If it was that time of year and we were wearing, someone would probably offer to take our coat. Here, let me have your coat. I'll go hang it up or I'll go put it on a bed or something. Someone else would say, come right this way. And they'd usher us in either to a sitting room where we'd sit and wait for dinner to be ready or they'd take us into the dining room itself and show us where we're going to sit. And we'd wait until the host or hostess sat down and and then we too would get into our seats and we'd take our napkin and we'd spread it across our lap and we'd wait to say grace together and begin the meal. It's a fairly standard script. The culture has conditioned us what to expect when we're invited to someone's home for a meal. That's our culture. What about Jesus' culture? Here, I need a volunteer. Okay, Bryce. I can see the look of excitement on your face already. I'm a Pharisee. I'm going to invite you to come over to my house for dinner. You'd come to my house, and when you knock on the door, you'd just come walking right in. You would come walking right in. Come walking right in. You would come walking right in. Because in Jesus' day, if someone was coming over, the door would already be open. They were expecting company. People would come and go all throughout the meal. The door would be open. But I, being your host, would be watching for you to come. Okay, this is going to get weird here. Uh, I'd be watching for you to come. And when I see you come, I would greet you to my house. If you're my equal, I would <laughs> kiss you on both cheeks. i kiss you on both... Now, if you were a rabbi, or if you were someone better than me, let's go there. If you're my equal, I kiss you on both cheeks. Not doing that again, that's weird. If you were my, my better, if you were someone of a higher rank in society than me, I wouldn't dare kiss your cheek, I would kiss your hand. I'd kiss your hand. If you were a rabbi, rabbis are given the highest honor, right? If you were a rabbi, I'd have every single male in my house. Okay, Brock, uh, uh, c- come on, come on you got to get on. Every male in the house would be standing waiting. Hurry up, hurry up. Don't have all day. The sermon's long enough already. I'd have everyone, every male in my house waiting for you to come. And when you come, I would kiss your hand. And every male in the house. Very good. You can go sit back down. Every male in the house would kiss your hand. That's how you greet a rabbi when they, every male in the house kisses you on the hand. And then I'd say, come on right in. And we go into the, come on. We go into the dining room. Say, I thought couches are in the living room. They're in our living rooms. They're in their dining rooms. In fact, their dining room is called the triclinium in Latin, triclinos in Greek, literally the room of three couches because that's how they ate. There would be a group of three couches uh, situated around a a low table. Depending on the honor I want to show my guest, I would tell my guest which couch he's supposed to lay on. Take your pick. You can have any one you want. And the guests would lie down on the couch. <laughs> lie down on the couch? Not lie down. No, how are you going to eat with your feet? The food's down there. Yeah, very good, very good. Much, much better. You would lie down on your left hand side. Why? Because you don't want to eat with your left hand. You do other things with your left hand. That's not the hand you use for eating. You lie down on the left-hand side so that you can reach with your right and eat. So you ready? You ready? Someone would come and they'd take off your shoes. Oh, whose idea was this? Whose idea was this? And and someone would bring someone would bring the water. Now, if I really wanted to honor you, if I really wanted to honor you, I would have one of my, I there's no way I would do this. But I would have one of my servants come and And wash your feet and dry them so that you're ready for the meal. If you weren't being particularly honored, I would just bring you the water and trust you to wash your own feet. (laughs) (laughs) There's no water there. It's okay. You're safe. Okay. So once your feet (laughs) are washed, you lie back then. So you got the washing feet down. That that's part of it too. Then maybe. Frequently, not all the time, but maybe I'd also bring you some olive oil. I don't have this, you don't have to worry about that today. I'd bring you some olive oil and and give you some olive oil so you could put it on your face and your head. Talk about weird in our culture. That's everyone looks better when their hair is oily. That's what they thought in Jesus' day, I guess. And so I'd bring you some oil to fix your hair and freshen yourself up for the meal. And then once everything was ready, they'd bring the food. serve are you awkward uncomfortable yet okay good here take your shoes you can go sit back down thank you notice this story that that's what you'd expect to happen when somebody came to your house for dinner you'd be greeted you'd be kissed you'd be shown a seat you'd water would be brought for your feet oil would be brought for your head and then you'd move on to the meal But notice Luke 7. Here we're at uh, verse 36. It simply says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he, Jesus, went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. No mention is made of any of this standard greeting or polite etiquette. Then notice what comes next. As surprising as it is that Jesus is not greeted or welcomed in the proper way, what comes next is even more surprising. Verse 37 says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar. You might be thinking, where in the world are these visitors come? Why are there extra guests? She obviously wasn't invited to this dinner, and yet she came. That isn't surprising. That's not the surprising part of the story. Remember, the door is left open, right? The door is left open. Other people were expected to come and go during the meal. What do you do for entertainment in a world without Netflix, right? Well, if you're lucky you go to somebody's house for dinner. And if you're not lucky, you go to somebody's house and watch somebody else have dinner. Weird, I know. But the dinner wasn't so much about the food. The dinner was about the discussion. Especially if you heard that a teacher, if you heard that a rabbi was going to go visit the house of a Pharisee, you know there was going to be a lively discussion over that meal. And it was not uncommon for people from the village hearing Hearing that this was happening, to go to that person's house to to watch the meal and to listen to the discussion, curious to see who made the best arguments, who, who proved their point, who won the debate, so to speak. So it's not surprising to hear that this woman from the city hears that Jesus is dining at the Pharisee's house. The new rabbi in town is going to the old expert in the law's house and people are naturally curious to hear that discussion. And they arrive early to watch what goes on. We don't know it in the story yet. We'll find out in verse 45 that the woman actually arrives before Jesus. Since the time I entered, Jesus says, indicating that she was there when Jesus first arrived. She comes early. She wants She wants to hear what Jesus has to say. But notice how Luke describes her. This woman was a sinner in the city. That tells us some things about her circumstances. It certainly suggests, if not outright states, that she is what we today would call a prostitute. Without a family, without a husband to care for her and provide for her, she is doing the only thing she can to survive. She is in this certain class of citizen that is on the outside that has no voice and no hope. She's also of a class of citizen that was looked down on as sinful. There's no way in the world that she would ever be welcomed into the home of a Pharisee. Someone who prided himself on keeping the law and remaining perfectly pure. As a prostitute, not only did she engage in in her illicit business, she would have done so frequently in the company of those who were not Jews. She frequently would have spent time with Gentiles, making her doubly unclean. She would not have been welcome. The Pharisee would have seen her as an infection to be disinfected. Yet she comes when she hears that Jesus is going to the Pharisee's house for dinner. She knows she's not welcome at the Pharisee's house. Yet there's something in her that knows she is welcome at the feet of Jesus. We don't know for certain. The story itself certainly seems to suggest that this woman has seen and heard Jesus before. There are hints here that there probably was a previous encounter. Maybe she was one of those tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus has already eaten. Certainly, if not, she's come to understand that the well, the Pharisee might not welcome her. There's room for her at Jesus' feet. I personally suspect that that might be why she brought that bottle of perfume. I'm told it was not uncommon for women in Jesus' day, particularly women employed as she was, to wear around their neck a small vial, alabaster vial of perfume, used to freshen themselves up and prepare them to entertain the attentions of men when the need or opportunity arose. Maybe that's why she brought her perfume. She'd been to Jesus. She'd found her way to Jesus' feet, and she was leaving that kind of lifestyle She didn't need that perfume anymore. So she came to see Jesus at the house of the Pharisee. She's there when Jesus arrives. She's already waiting to watch Jesus come in. That means she's there to see how Jesus is not welcomed when He comes in. She's there. She watches to see that no one greeted Him. She's watching to see that no one places a kiss on His hand or even a kiss on His cheek. She's there to see where and how Jesus is seated. She's there to see that no one brings water to let Jesus wash His own feet. Let alone provide a servant to do it for him. She's there to see that no one brings around olive oil to anoint Jesus' face and head. We're told later on there are other people at this banquet, at this meal. One wonders how those others were treated who lined up to kiss their cheeks, who seated them in the seats of honor, who washed their feet. Yet Jesus is there ignored. The lack of welcome makes it apparent that the Pharisee has no respect for Jesus. And seeing her rabbi, seeing the Messiah who made room for her treated in this way, breaks something inside her. She does something unexpected. Luke says she... She stands at Jesus' feet. Why? We don't really know. Personally, I suspect she remembered that perfume she brought. They didn't bring him olive oil to freshen his head. The least she can do is see that that's taken care of. I don't know that for certain, but I suspect that's my inkling here. She steps up to anoint Jesus' head. Yet standing at the feet of Jesus, she's overcome. She starts to cry. She starts to weep. Tears run down her cheeks. Big, heavy drops drip from her chin. Splotches start to appear as wet tears splash on Jesus' dirty feet. She looks down and sees what's happening, and now she begins to worry. Nothing she can do. She's not a servant. She doesn't have a towel. She can't clean up the mess she's made. So she does the only thing she can. She reaches up and she lets down her hair. Begins to dry Jesus's feet with her hair. You can almost hear a collective gasp go through those who are watching these events unfold. This woman has not only done something unexpected, stepping into the middle of the room, she does something unacceptable. In her day, in her culture, a woman would never let down her hair in public. You're only allowed to let down your hair at home, never in the presence of anyone except your husband. In fact, we talked not too long ago, teachings on divorce, the the Mishnah, the explanations of the rules about divorce, even included a rule that said to let down your hair in the presence of anyone other than your husband was grounds for divorce, for marital unfaithfulness. This is unacceptable. This is scandalous. She has let down her hair. This woman who has no husband Is drying Jesus' feet with her hair. We might have heard the gasp go through that crowd, but she doesn't. Her attention in that moment is on one person and one person only. She is washing the feet of her rabbi, and as she washes the feet, of her Savior, the emotions continue to well up inside of her. The wonder, the gratitude, the love. Soon she stoops even lower and kisses His feet. There is no one at the door to kiss His hand. No one even willing to count Him as a colleague and kiss Him on the cheek. She kisses His feet. And then it's like it hits her. She remembers where she is. She realizes what she's doing. She recalls what she came to do in the first place. Maybe she feels the weight of that jar around her neck. She remembers that she's come to anoint Jesus' head Yet suddenly she realizes she's not worthy to anoint God's Messiah. So instead she unstoppers that jar and pours out that perfume and her love on Jesus' feet. It is a breathtakingly beautiful scene. But the Pharisee's not impressed. He's invited Jesus into his home to make an example out of him. His whole intent was to engage that young rabbi in debate and put him in his place. Everything up to this point has been a calculated insult to put that rabbi in his place and show him who the real expert in the law is. And here this this woman, this harlot is making a public spectacle in his own home. Notice verse 39. Look carefully at what it says. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. I think that's an important word here. The Pharisee saw this. Luke, telling the story in Greek, uses a pronoun, and the pronoun is masculine, it's not feminine. Luke is pointing out that the Pharisee saw what is going on. That's what he noticed. He didn't see her, he saw this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, kids, you remember that from last week? That too is a hint, a clue in the Gospels. Almost without exception, when somebody says something to themselves, they're about to say something monumentally stupid. The Pharisee, who had invited him when he saw this, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is that she is a sinner. Now that dialogue is internal. We talk about talking to ourselves, and we can say things, and it's possible for us to talk to ourselves out loud. I do it all the time, get weird looks. You can talk to yourself and be overheard in English. In Greek it literally says, the Pharisee said, in himself. This dialogue is internal yet despite the fact that there's no way anyone else could have heard what he was thinking jesus has this man were a pro- you want prove jesus is a prophet the pharisee says in himself and jesus answers him verse 40 now notice this jesus answered him simon Now that's the first indication we have in this story of what this man's name was. To us, to Luke, to us, the reader, this man is just another one of the faceless, nameless Pharisees that appear all throughout the Gospels. That is how we tend to look at people, isn't it? We tend to see problems, not people. To us, he's just another Pharisee, but not Jesus. At the feet of Jesus, we find the kind of grace that sees us not as a problem, but as a person. And Jesus calls him by name. Simon, he says, there's something you need to hear. That's the implication of what Jesus says next. There's something I need to tell you. This might be painful to listen to, but you need to hear this. And Simon, for the first time in the story, actually gives Jesus the respect he deserves. Was it accidental or ironic? I don't know. It's hard to say. Either way, Simon, the one who did not greet Jesus as a rabbi when he comes into his house, says to Jesus, tell me, rabbi, tell me, teacher. And Jesus tells a story. It's a short story. In fact, it's one of the shortest parables in the Gospels. A moneylender, Jesus said. A moneylender had two debtors. Now pause right there for a moment. It's hard to see this wordplay in the English. But in Aramaic, in the language that Jesus would have been speaking that day, the word debtor and the word sinner are the same. You want proof of it? Look at the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed. Matthew, when Matthew translates the Aramaic Prayer of Jesus into Greek, says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Luke, when he translates the same Aramaic Prayer into Greek, says, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Debtor, sinner are the same word in in Jesus' language. Simon has just thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner, that she is a debtor. And Jesus takes that exact same word right out of of Simon's mind and says, let me tell you about some debtors I know. A moneylender had two of them. They each owed him a sum of money. One owed 50 denarii, about two months' worth of wages. The other owed 500, almost two years' worth of wages. Two months, two years, it didn't matter. Neither debtor, neither sinner could even repay the first coin he owed. They owed a debt they could not pay. You know what that moneylender did? He forgave them. Karizomai in the Greek, from charis, the word for grace. The sinners, the debtors, owed a debt they could not pay, and so the moneylender graced them. Debt canceled. Record wiped clean. Fresh start. All things have become new. Now you tell me, Simon, Jesus says, which of these two will love him more? What a question. Notice the question itself implies that both debtors, both sinners should be expected to love in response to grace. The question isn't which of these two love him. Obviously they both love the one who graced them. It's which of the two will love more. Jesus says we should all be expected to love. If we receive grace, we should be expected to love. And the depth of our love should be proportional to the extent of our forgiveness. And Simon stuck. Simon knows it. He's invited Jesus into his home to make a fool of the young rabbi, and now Simon's own foolishness has been laid bare for everyone watching to see. There's nothing he can say to get out of this, and so it's it's not without reason we hear a note of, of, of reluctant resignation as Simon answers and says, I suppose... I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. We're at the end of verse 43, start of verse 44. Notice this. Jesus says to Simon, you've judged correctly. And then Jesus turns to the woman. Kids, are you listening? You hear the sirens going off, you see the flashing lights, there's that key word again. How do you know when Jesus is about to say something really important? Well, one of the ways that Luke underscores it is he has Jesus turn and deliver a line dramatically. Jesus turns to the woman. This is important. Listen up here. Jesus turns to the woman and says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? Don't read past those words. Luke's just given us sirens and flashing lights that these words are important. Jesus turned, and the next word's out of his mouth. Do you see this woman? Because up to this point, Simon hasn't seen her. Remember that. He saw this. He didn't see her. He'd looked at her, but he saw what she was doing. He looked at her, but he saw her reputation. He looked at her, but he saw her occupation. He looked at her and he, he saw her guilt. He saw her. Simon has seen her sin, but Simon hasn't seen her yet. Jesus says, Do you see her? Calls him on his blindness, and he begins to recast her actions no longer in light of her reputation, but rather in light of what is going on in her heart. Do you see her, Jesus says. Because when you see her, what she's doing will take on all new significance. Especially when seen in contrast to Simon's own inaction. Simon, even though Simon was the host, this woman is the one who had welcomed him simon had offered no water for his feet she'd wet her feet his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair simon had offered no greeting no kiss on the cheek no kiss on the hand this woman had not stopped greeting jesus kissing his feet Simon hadn't offered no olive oil for his head, cheap, common, easily, readily available. Yet this woman had poured out her perfume, costly, precious, extravagant, on Jesus' feet. Everything Simon had not done, this woman has done, and even more. She has been loving lavishly. The Savior who saw her, who welcomed her, who graced her. Jesus who knew that she owed a debt that she could never repay and freely forgave. The depth of her love, Jesus says, reveals the depth of the forgiveness she's experienced. Because she's been forgiven much. It's apparent. We know she's been forgiven much because she's loved much. But the one who loves little has only... Or the one who's been forgiven little only loves little. Put yourself in Simon's shoes for a second. What does that say about Simon who loves Jesus not at all? Love much, been forgiven much. Love little, been forgiven little. Simon loves not at all. And then Jesus speaks some familiar words to the woman. He says, your sins have been... Catch that there? We talked about that last week. Your sins have been perfect tense. Past action completed in the past yet the effects are still present. Your sins have been forgiven. And everyone present said, whoa, something special has just happened, right? We're not told what the crowd watching from the edges did, but we do know what the other guests reclining at the table did. What those who had been excluded and now are being included in the circle of grace, we are not told their reaction, but but Simon's friends were told what they did they said to themselves they said to themselves who is this man who even forgives sin and Jesus isn't talking to them Jesus is talking to the woman your faith Jesus says third time the gospel of luke first The vandals on the roof. Not the Pharisees in the room. The vandals digging through the roof. He saw their faith. Second, not the Jewish elders coming and going with messages, but the Roman general. Third, not the Pharisees on the couches, but the woman who was a sinner in the city. Jesus is finding faith in surprising places. Your faith, He says, has saved you. It's rescued you out of danger. It has made you whole. That word saved means both to rescue and to make whole. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Interesting phrase there. Go. Now, that word go comes from a verb that means, in the active voice, to lead or to put into motion. Uh, In the Greek language, that word is used to describe somebody who takes charge and either leads people where they should go or tells them where they ought to go. Yet in the New Testament, it never appears in the active voice. Always passive. (laughs) We're not the one putting things into motion. We're not the one calling the shots and telling others where they ought to go. In the New Testament, it is always, let yourself be led. Let yourself be set into motion. Go. Go. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Go in shalom. Now, in is probably a bad translation here. Literally, it says, go into. Go into peace. It's not an adverb describing how she ought to go. It's a destination. Your faith has made you whole. Now let yourself be led into wholeness.